Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and supported by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. In each episode, we spotlight the numerous efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. I'm your host, Elise Koning of Hoosier Ag Today, and today's episode is all about insects. And there's been a lot going on in the insect world lately. This past summer, monarch butterflies were classified as endangered. Indiana's state insect, the firefly, is facing the danger of extinction, and bees are really having a hard time. We want to dig into what's happening with insects, and we'll talk about not only how they connect to healthy soil, but how they connect with plant health, animal health, and even the health of our rural communities and ourselves. Later on, we'll discuss an opportunity to become involved in some of the work that's going on to advance regenerative agriculture. Let's meet our guest. Jonathan Lundgren founded Ecdysis Foundation in 2016 and now directs the work of this research foundation and trains future scientists and farmers at Blue Dasher Farm in South Dakota. He is an agroecologist, farmer, rancher, and beekeeper. Pat Bittner is a southern Indiana fifth-generation farmer who grows corn and soybeans. He's the third generation using conservation practices, and he's seven years into practicing regenerative farming with 100% no-till, high-biomass cocktail mixes, and planting green. He's been beekeeping since 1976. So Jonathan, let's start with you. What's the state of insects today? We're losing our insects, like we're losing so many, uh, uh, so much of life on Earth right now. Uh, Extinction rates are are pretty high, but the farmers are teaching us that there's a better way, um, that they are more profitable, and by focusing on soil health, and ultimately, I think that this is a big part of the answer for insect conservation. So, Pat, what have you been seeing in your farm's fields as far as the insect population goes? Well, since we started down the regenerative path and and doing um, high biomass, um, large cocktail mixes, and we let them go close to maturity since we're planting green and and we crimp, uh, we've seen a huge increase in um, different types of insects um, when we're out there in the field, and we've seen a, a large increase in the number of species of birds that um, are around our farm uh, that we hadn't seen in a while. And um, we've also seen an increase in honey production on the hives that we have on our farm. Uh, So it's been a good thing for us. And um, I guess uh, from a a financial standpoint, for the last seven years, we've not had to use any pesticides or fungicides. And I would like to think that that's because we've um, brought in a lot of beneficials and they're, they're keeping uh, what's classified as a pest in check. Um, but uh, nevertheless, we're seeing a, a lot more um, wildlife, whether it's insects or otherwise, than we have in the past. So it sounds like there's a lot of benefits to having those insects on the farm. Both Jonathan and Pat, can you speak to how health on a farm and healthy soil is related to having those beneficial insects? The natural world doesn't work in in silos, right? Uh, And so we're talking about insects today. 
but insects are really an indicator of life and, and, and all of the different species from microbes to plants, to birds, just like what Pat was saying on his farm. Um, so you really can't partition those out. You know, if you have a pest problem on your, on your operation, generally that's a, that's a reflection of something else in the system kind of out of whack. Um, and so unless you're fixing that underlying problem, you're not going to end up solving your insect problems or your insect outbreaks. Um, so many of these issues end up being tied back to soil health and 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 the health of the ecosystem that a farmer is trying to ma maintain and manage. Yeah, and, and you know, back to our farm, uh, when we're crimping, uh, we see tons of different types of bees and stuff. And I, I'm glad we got a cab on the tractor because I don't think they're happy that we're uh, crimping down their habitat at that time. But uh, we let it go as long as we can. <laughs> but uh, it, it's interesting uh, to, to see uh, the amount of, of life going on uh, when you're going back and forth in the field. In fact, I've, I've told my dad that I don't know that I could. Uh, plant on conventional acres anymore and still stay awake because every round that we're planting in our high biomass cover crops is a new adventure. It's just amazing all the different wildlife you see and uh, different things that are going on. And um, our soils are, are definitely improving uh, because of, of the way we're doing it with the uh, cover crops and, and the diversity of, of, um, insects and and wildlife that that are coming as a result of it uh, the quail population has increased dramatically uh, we're seeing large coveys of you know a dozen quail in a covey on our farm and in the past you might see two or three here or there in a, in a covey so uh, i think we're going the right direction and um we're looking forward to at some time in the future, maybe going back to some uh, pastures and, and doing some pasture proteins in that. And uh, from what I've read and seen on some other farms, uh, the quality uh, is a lot higher uh, with what you get back from doing that. The insects really help to, to foster that, don't they? You know, I mean, by, I mean, we think of, grazers as as large ruminants and how important they were in maintaining the prairie but insect herbivory good golly that has a tremendous effect on the on the smells and the colors and the diversity of life that happens in a, in a pasture or in a crop field um, and and really that's what's regulating you know they're self-regulating right and so if you have that diversity we've done the science on that if you have that diversity, you just don't have pests anymore. They're also great indicators, aren't they? So if you see something out there, you you know that what you're doing is is right. Well, we've we've uh, I've got a, a little um, looks like a shot glass that uh, Adam Daughtry from the NRCS uh, gave me one year at one of his field days. You put that down on the soil, and when you're standing up and looking down at it you don't notice much and you put that little magnifying glass mm -hmm. shot glass down on there and look through it. And it's incredible the amount of movement that's going on that you can't see with the naked eye. If you're five foot or taller in inside those cover crop fields and 
The other thing that's pretty cool that we've noticed is uh, when that cover crop is uh, blooming, the legumes are blooming and, and the uh, cereal rye and stuff is in pollination that if you go out in that field and kind of just stand there or, or sit down in it, how noisy it is. Mm-hmm. The amount of is, is incredible. Yeah. Do you find, uh, so one of the things that I get asked a lot Pat is, you know, with these cover crops, it ends up in exacerbating things like, like cutworms or, or army worms or something like that. Have you ever seen that on your own place? I, I have not. And, but what I, on a, um, other farms, um, Rick Clark, um, who's a small farmer of about 7,000 acres in, in hmm. central Indiana, uh, and heavy into cover crops and that he had a field that they were growing alfalfa on for a couple seasons for a neighboring farmer that they trade uh, the hay for manure. And he decided then to plant it into corn and he had to replant that field, I think four or five times one year because of army worms. Hmm. It was pure monocrop alfalfa. Yeah. He had a field that was adjoining it. You couldn't even see where the line was that had a multi-species cover crop in it no army worms. And that's something. I think that's the answer to, you know, uh, to that question. You know, I have heard of certain people that have said, no, I have a multi-species mix out there and I still have it, but I just, you know, that's not something I've ever seen or experienced. And when I've been traveling around uh, the country this last summer, grasshoppers in our area of the country are a big issue. And in a multi-species cover mix, boy, that those grasshoppers just, you know, once it's up and going, those grasshoppers just don't even ding it. And it's the only green thing on the, on the landscape. So I think diversity of plants is really important. I agree. I think that's a key um, with the whole system is diversity. Mm, Everybody wants a dipstick though, don't they, Pat? Everybody wants to Stick a stick something into the ground and pull it out and say, "Okay, soil health is full." I don't know that that's the answer, is it? No, that's. Um, I think it's um, to me, it's prescription farming. Use yeah. this chemical, this seed, and this synthetic input, and you'll get this outcome. And and with re- with generative ag, it's a system, and if you understand the principles, um, it works anywhere. And once you get to the surface level of it, um, I find it easier um, because I have more control over the resource as far as moisture and temperature. And, you know, last year um, we'd be plant and we're not a big farmer uh, at all. We're probably the smallest in the area that I'm at. We're about 250 tillable acres. And I'd plant one of our fields and a rain would be coming literally right behind me and chase me out of the field. Mm-hmm. And it kept most guys out of the, the conventional guys out of the field for a day. And I was back in by noon the next day because the living cover crop absorbed that water. And I think our infiltration is much better. So it, to me, it's a tool that gives me more control. And then later this year, we had a, a period of about, four or so weeks that it got pretty dry. And uh, I think we came through it in better shape um, than a lot of my neighbors. 
because of having the, the residue and, and the better infiltration. Mm. When it rains, we get all the rain. <laughs> yeah, right. Some of my neighbors, rains, okay. some of it takes off. Everything that you're saying, though, Pat, I mean, that kind of flies in the face of conventional knowledge. I mean, and, and the predictability of it all, right? I mean, I think a lot of the reasons that people farm conventionally is, is you know, you you put, you check this box, this box, and this box, and you, you know you're going to get a yield or at least an insurance check. Um, but what you're talking about, and, and this whole idea of regenerative ag, it, it it's different, right? It's not as well. You called it prescriptive farming. I like that, but isn't there isn't there like safety in that? Isn't there? I don't know what I'm, what word I'm looking for. What do you what do you tell people about that? It's an old way of farming that's new again. So you know, prior to the end of World War II, that's how our grandparents and them farmed. My mm-hmm. my grandpa used to plant uh, rye on the farm and plow it under as green manure. Mm-hmm. And, and most and, of the nation's most of the nation's honeybees are in the Dakotas every summer because that this used to be where they produce sweet clover seed. And the, the sweet clover of the whole United States was grown right here and the bees came in to pollinate it, but they used that sweet clover for green manure. Yeah. So you know I I, I think it's a matter of the information uh, being disseminated out to farmers and, and a new, um, authority, I guess, uh, you know, because, and, and I don't want to step on toes here, but I have a tendency to do that sometimes, but, you know, we, uh, a lot not of me, not me. ag groups, the chemical companies and that want university testing for their, their product because we feel that the universities are the go-to resource and I think it's changing, but uh, there's probably not as much money uh, to be spent on does this cover crop help us out or not versus does um, the, the revenue that say Roundup has generated over the years <laughs> and what they could pay for that test. Um, so I, I think it's just uh, learning relearning and now we have a lot more knowledge about what's going on in the soil and yet the best estimate i've ever heard is we know about 10 percent you know there was problems with the way that our grandparents farmed that's why the kids didn't stay on the farm but there was a lot of good things that was there there's a lot of problems with industrialized agriculture right and conventional agriculture as it's practiced today and we're not keeping I mean, our rural communities are dying right now because we can't keep the kids on the farm. But with so to me, what regenerative ag kind of does is it takes the best of both of those worlds and kind of fuses those together. It does. And it, it doesn't have to be an all or none because I, I see uh, farms that have adopted trying to keep a living root in the soil as close to 365 days a year as they can. And they're still using the exact same fertilizers and inputs that they did when they were tilling the soil. Yeah. And, and their soil has, is tremendously improved. I think you'll eventually hit a wall there because um, any type of synthetic inputs, whether it's um, some sort of pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, or if it's, you know, liquid nitrogen or 
any of those type synthetic inputs, I think you'll hit a wall. And, and until you start reducing or eliminating them, you won't see the full potential, at least based on what I've been studying and, and learning. But the number one thing is, is, is keeping a living root because you, you got to feed the biology that I don't think we had a good awareness of until the last 15 or so years. And it's, it's still a small percentage of the farmers that are seeing that, I believe. Yeah, I often kind of, there's a, there's a statement, and let's see if I get it right, but there's more money that's being made off of cancer being a do- than could ever be made off of cancer being cured, right? And I think that that might be the same situation in our agricultural system right now. There's so much money being made off of studying and, and fixing problems than there could ever be by actually like solute or solving things. So it doesn't really incentivize us moving forward, but regenerative ag kind of, I don't know, to me, it tips the balance of power back into the hands of the farmers, as opposed to all of these other folks that are making money off of it. I would agree with you. I, I, I've been heard several times saying that we as farmers are the biggest addicts in the, in the world because of the chemicals and stuff and the fertilizers that we have been told for years that you got to do this to, to grow a crop. And uh, the more I learn about regenerative, um, the more I'm seeing that's not the case. And um, it can be more profitable. And uh, it rebuilds, as you were talking about, I think regenerative ag is the way we rebuild communities. Mm-hmm. And it's not and, an outcome that we think of when we're talking, when we're on a podcast about about entomology and, and pest management, suddenly we're now we're talking about the solution to pest problems is the same solution as it is for rebuilding rural communities. Isn't that something? That would be my next question is how are the (laughs) insects related to the economics of farming? Because we're talking about regenerative ag. A lot of farmers are interested in looking at the economic side. So what would you say are the economic benefits to using regenerative agriculture and benefiting these insects? I'll start. Uh, You cannot be a successful farmer without having insects. Uh, you have to have life in your fields for you to maximize the profitability and the resilience of your farm. If you don't have that biodiversity in the form of insect life, then ultimately you will fail. And that failure looks, it comes in different flavors, right? Maybe it's every year losing more and more of your profit margin. Maybe it's uh, kids not wanting to stay home. Maybe it's, maybe it's your grandkids are sick with something that you weren't expecting. That failure is being felt across the United States and around the world right now. And it's related to how we've been managing problems, especially pest problems within our food system. And I, I agree with that. I mean, we, we're uh, primarily right now a corn and, and soybean rotation, maybe every once in a while some wheat, and then along with the cover crops. Uh, but farming uh, is also fruits and vegetables. And as a beekeeper, um, even in our area, we were contacted yearly uh, by the orchards and the watermelon patches and places like that that would pay us to bring our bees in because it was if they didn't have bees during pollination, uh, their crop was severely limited. Our beneficials, I read the numbers are going down. We're losing them. 
And my question is, are they lost or is the habitat so low that the populations have dwindled to where we don't know if they're still there or not? And if we start creating the habitat, is it possible that we can bring them back and, and bring back the numbers? Yeah, uh, the answer to that is yes. Uh, so <laughs> to both of those, uh, are they lost? Yes, extinction rates are the highest that the planet has ever experienced. We are living through the worst mass extinction event the planet Earth has ever seen. Uh, it's worse than when the dinosaurs went extinct. We're losing species at such a rate. Um, at current extinction rates, you know, we talk about soil loss and topsoil loss and how we've got 50 years of topsoil left. Well, at current extinction rates, we also have about 50 years worth of, of life, left, uh, the majority of life on Earth left. So this is a crisis. This is huge. There are pockets. There are there are holdouts for a lot of biodiversity. And if you build it, they will come. Um, and so that was one of the neat things that we ended up seeing uh, when we started working with some oilseed crops um, where we were doing some spring oilseed work where these were flowering crops that could potentially be cover crop species and things like that. And we visited or we looked for pollinators and it was, I mean, there were pollinators that came to these crops that I'd never seen before uh, to the tune of, I think there was like 80 species that were there in Eastern South Dakota, but we hadn't seen them in a long, long time. So it is possible to, well, it's really our, what's the alternative, right? <laughs> Not doing anything. We know how that ends. So uh, changing is going to uh, at least give those that are still around a leg up. What do you see as some of the unattended consequences of use of some of the different sides? And, and what I'm talking about is I, I hear all the time where farmers are, have decided to apply a fungicide and the dealer says, hey, do you want us to throw in a pesticide because it's only $5 an acre or something? And they mm -hmm. throw it in there just because it's cheap. Yeah. I don't think we have a lot of respect for the uh, for the risks that are associated with these things, right? You know, I used to conduct risk assessments for the EPA and the European Food Safety Authority on pesticides and genetically modified organisms. I worked on it for about 20 years. There's an assumption, there's a presumption that when you go to the co-op co or the or the home, uh, you know, the home store, um, that that and you buy a, a jug that somebody's watching and somebody is assessing the risks of these things. I can tell you after 20 years of doing that work, nobody's watching, okay? That, how could they? They're, who would pay for that? There's literally 20,000 pesticide formulations, each that would require a full environmental assessment to understand its impact in just the United States. Who on earth would do that work? So when there is a label, who's, who's provided the necessary data? Well, it's the people that made the product that says, okay, look at this, this one that we made is safe. Uh, right now, the, our farming communities have the highest suicide rates of any career choice. Yeah, fertility problems. Know anybody that can't have kids right now? I do, I've got them on staff. Uh, 
autism rates. How about that? In my own family, out of my parents, uh, nine grandkids, five of them have autism. Uh, cancer rates, autoimmune diseases, food intolerances. How about celiacs? How about gluten intolerance? Guess what, folks? This is all related. The science is clear. This is related to pesticide use. Okay. So we've got a good solution. I'm not saying ban the stuff. I'm saying, you know what? I'm not fighting that fight anymore. I know what the solution is. You don't need to buy it. Why on earth would I pay for all of these pesticides? Even five bucks an acre. If it, it <laughs> I'm cheap, right? Uh, if it's not helping me and it's actually doing all these potentially other things, why bother? So, um, yeah, that's where I stand on it at least. Right now, the last few years, stink bugs have been a, a problem. And even with soybeans, is there a correlation between the decline in beneficials and stink bugs seem to be a little bit dominant right now? Well, I think if it's brown marmorated, so invasive species end up going through cycles generally. When they first are introduced into an area and you have acres and acres and acres of, it may be beautiful and green, but it's stressed because it's been bred to make, it's had most of its defenses bred out of that plant in, or in, in favor of large seeds. And so most soybean fields are just an accident waiting to happen. Same with corn, same with, you know, wheat. We've lost most of that plant's natural resilience to pests. And in comes an invasive species like soybean aphid or brown marmorated stink bugs, or I don't know what the, whatever the flavor of the day is, it, it ain't going to stop. Meanwhile, you've also destroyed your soil health, which is that plant's sole approach to being able to defend itself, um, is to take that life in the soil that could trip certain immune pathways in order to defend itself. Huge problem just ends up becoming this um, uh, perennial issue in soybeans and corn. Natural enemies do learn how to, uh, uh, what what's edible and what's not. And so, you know, whereas uh, several years back, soybean aphids were always a perpetual problem, uh, you could count on it. Now, you know, I don't hear a ton about soybean aphid outbreaks the same way as I did when I was first hired by the USDA to help with the soybean problem. Partially, that's because the natural enemies have learned to live with it. But partially, it's, you know, just that e ecosystem kind of equilibrating to an asteroid hit. I guess, you know, my understanding with plants is that their immune system is not always on like in humans or mammals. And a lot of that's got to do with the health of the soil, how easily or whether or not that gets turned on. And then that immune system, along with beneficials and uh, the BRICS level of the plant, it seems to be all tied together. For sure. All of those are, again, solved with soil health practices, though. You had mentioned that, you know, it, the plant defense systems may function differently than our defense systems. And that's, I don't think that that's true. I actually think that, you know, look at us, if we're not eating healthy food or if we're living in an intoxicated environment or something, yeah, we may have T cells or something, but we can't fight off infections. 
And it's similar to in plants, you know, we put them in this sterilized environment where they're not, they don't belong. You know, who belongs there is weeds. Those are the early colonists. <laughs> and so if we don't make that habitat something where these, where these crop plants can thrive or, and then create crop plants that are able to thrive. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you get higher bricks level. This is something that we're dying to study. I have not seen great data on it. Um, I've heard so many positive anecdotes that does feel like something's going on, but we did, I, I'd like to get some empirical data on that one. And that seems to be related, but you know, honestly, how you produce high bricks levels is through encouraging soil health. We've talked a lot about the challenges that we're facing with insects and broadening that out to our rural communities. This is where the Ecdysis Foundation comes in. It's an interesting name. Ecdysis is actually an insect term. Jonathan, what does it mean and what does the foundation do? Yeah, ecdysis means metamorphosis, uh, shedding the old skin. And, and that's something that we certainly had to do as we kind of got out of the traditional academic matrix of science. What we are trying to do is, is uh, provide sort of, or sort of rethink how science is applied to foster an evolution towards regenerative food production on a national level, actually a global level eventually. But we're starting out with one continent at a time. Pat, you recently visited Blue Dasher Farm, which is part of the Ecdysis Foundation. What all did you see on your visit? Uh, got to see the largest insect collection I've ever seen in person before and, and talked to some of Jonathan's um, co-workers out there that were very giving and sharing of their information. And that was uh, really interesting. And then uh, got to walk around his farm a little bit and um, lots of diversity. So I, uh, Jonathan definitely practices what he preaches. One of our premises is that, you know, when we got started and how to rethink science is that the scientists have to be farmers and we have to have that firsthand experience. Otherwise, how on earth can we connect with the issues that farmers are, are, are facing? Um, we have to walk a mile in their shoes. And so Blue Dasher Farm is an operating farm. Um, in regenerative ag that's meant to give us that opportunity to train the next generation of scientists. One term that's been used before regenerative ag really came along was sustainable agriculture. Sometimes we'll still hear a little bit about it. What's the difference between sustainable agriculture and regenerative agriculture, and which one do we want to push towards? You know, sustainable agriculture means, they're very similar, all right. Uh, sustainable agriculture is a term that was used to say, kind of, let's sustain our natural resource base. But things aren't, things aren't good right now, right? We've, we've depleted our, the natural resource base of our farming systems to the point where simply sustaining them isn't going to be good enough. It's not going to be good enough for fighting pollution. It's not going to be good enough for fighting climate change. It's not going to be good enough for reversing desertification and, and disrupting or uh, correcting water balances within the soil. It's not going to be good enough for solving some of these human health crises that we're facing right now. We actually have to be rebuilding that, regenerating 
that natural resource base. And, and regenerative agriculture, I think, is the term that's being used to think about it differently. What types of initiatives does the Ecdysis Foundation have in working with regenerative farmers? Um, well, right now we're, we're actually conducting the largest agricultural experiment that's ever been attempted. What we're trying to do is test, does regenerative agriculture work no matter what you grow and where you grow it? Does it provide on some of these solutions that it claims, like does it sequester carbon, does it reverse desertification, does it increase life, including insects, does it increase rural resilience and farm profitability? And then the other question that we're trying to answer with the Thousand Farms Initiative is um, there's a lot of farmers that have made this transition successfully. And what can we learn from those farmers in each region around the country in order to see, you know, are there consistencies? Can we produce roadmaps, farmer generated roadmaps that uh, allow subsequent farmers to adopt these things with minimal risk? So this last year we were on, uh, we did full systems inventories on 310 farms. We were actually on 380 farms around the U.S. That, that alone, I think, makes it a large experiment. In each of these farms, we looked at carbon, deep carbon, uh, soil chemical physical properties, water. We looked at uh, invertebrates, microbial communities, plant communities, bird communities, economics, management decisions, pollutions. Uh, generation, these sorts of things on each of these farms. And we provided that information back to the farmers for free. Uh, it's about $7,500 per farm that we're end up uh, uh, providing to these farmers. So we're looking at expanding into Indiana a little bit more next year, Ohio um, areas. So if there's farmers that are interested in getting a heck of a lot of information, these are the best studied farms ever in terms of systems level responses. So. You mentioned the cost in putting these studies together. How could someone who's interested in helping out with that cost get involved? Oh, geez. We, um, you know, well, we know what the flat rate is per farm, and we know how many farms we'd like to do. If you have uh, soil conservation districts, if you have community organizations, if you know philanthropists within your area, if you have folks, uh, if you're in an in industry and you want to know whether or not your sustainability goals are actually being met, met by um, encouraging your supply chain to go this route, then consider sponsoring these farms. Uh, we, we would really appreciate that. Get the word out. Spread the word. As we're drawing near to uh, the close of our conversation and um, thinking about what we want the audience to take away Pat and Jonathan, what are the main ideas that you would want someone to think about the rest of today, and what actions could they take to help this effort? Well, uh, a few things that, that we're doing on our farm is uh, we've got hills and, and creek bottoms, and our hills have parallel outlet terraces on them, and we're planting cover crop and pollinator species on the top sides of the terraces because they're only about 15 foot wide and uh, hard uh, for a, a 30 foot combine head to uh, combine that without hanging a dual off the edge of a terrace. And that's a little scary and dangerous. So um, we're, we're doing that and we're trying to do some things with right away strips, uh, getting blossoms in there 
to bring pollinators and and beneficial insects back to the area and i guess uh something that i would like to see is you know everybody can help with this from a homeowner with a you know a small yard all the way up to the large uh farmers and that and that is you know put out let your lawn have some uh ladino white clover and uh and dandelions in them um, that it's just as pretty as that uh, pure green lawn. It's just a matter of changing your perception. And uh, in the farmers, I think you'll see a benefit by bringing those beneficials back and, and quite possibly a cost savings on your inputs. And everybody wants a dipstick. We talked about that earlier. Um, you know, is, is what I'm doing, working in terms of regenerative agriculture. I tell people that the best measure is not a test, okay, of whether or not you're being successful. If, if you are going out on your farm every day and you see something you've never seen before, then you're doing things right. And no test is going to, I mean, the tests are all just going to confirm that. This is a lot cheaper. Uh, what can people do? You know, there's something. Yes, we can we can talk about all of the practices and that can that comprise a successful system, and that's important and that's functional. But there is something fundamental that needs to be started, and and that is reconnecting with the land. You know, one of my scientists and I were <laughs> driving by, and he stopped by a soybean field, and he said. Hey, look at that one right out there. I'm like, yes. Um, and he said that field was tilled. It was sprayed with herbicides. It was sprayed with fungicides and insecticides are on the seeds. And then um, they came through after it germinated. They had to do a, a, yep, a post-plant herbicide. And then they, um, they flew on a, a fungicide and insecticide. And then they um, came back through, harvested it, tilled it again, sprayed herbicide one last time. Human feet never touched that piece of ground. And that lack of connection is so important. So what I tell everybody, it may sound crazy, but I think it gets to the root cause of our current dilemmas is everybody should take off their socks and shoes and they should go out and walk in the prairie or walk on their farms and connect with it with all of their senses. And that, that connection is what's really gonna get us out of this mess. I agree with what Jonathan Jonathan just said. Um, the connection and the the power of observation is is a key. Uh, learning those skills again to to changing this direction and and going positive again. So, how can we find out more information about the Ecdysis Foundation? Uh, go to ecdysis.bio or blue-farm. Uh, Ecdysis is spelled E-C-D-Y-S-I-S, E-C-D-Y-S-I-S dot B-I-O. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, uh, Instagram. I don't know all of these different handles and stuff like that, but look for us and you'll see what we're up to. And Pat, if someone wanted to learn more about what you're doing on your farm, where could they go? Right now, they can uh, call my cell at 812-499-7151, and uh, it's always on. I'm an IT guy as my day job, so it, it's always on. 
Thanks so much for sharing all the information. Really thought-provoking, and I really appreciate your time coming on the Soil Health Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. This episode of the Soil Health Podcast was brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can learn more about their efforts and see a schedule of events at ccsin.org. For Hoosier Ag Today, I'm Elise Koning. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, create your riches below the surface with healthy soil.